Chapter One of Then There Were Five by Elizabeth Enright. Oh, but first there's an introduction, and I also want to thank Yumi in Canada for reminding me to record this book. So, introduction. Quite often I receive letters from children asking to know if the Melendies are real. Are Mona, Rush, Randy, and Oliver really alive, they ask? Or were they ever? Was there once a real Cuffy or a real Isaac? Or a house called the Four Story Mistake? The answers to these questions are mixed. It must be admitted that such a family, made of flesh and blood, whom one could touch, talk to, argue with, and invite to parties, does not actually exist. Yet in other ways, as I shall try to show, each of these people is at least partly real. Once, when I was a child, I heard of a family named Melendy. I do not know how many children were in this family, or what kind of people they were, but for some reason I liked their name, and stored it away in my mind to borrow for the four-story children at a much later date. So they began, at least, with a real name. As I went along, I borrowed other things—qualities, habits, remarks, events. I borrowed them from my children, from my own childhood, even from the dogs we have had, and from the conversations and recollections of many of our friends and relatives. Mona and Randy, for instance, are partly made of things I remember about myself as a child—only the better things, of course—and things that I wish I had been, and that I would like to have had in daughters of my own. In Mona I also recognize my dearest cousin, as well as my roommate in boarding school, who was going to be an actress, and who was frequently discovered acting the part of Joan of Arc, in front of the bathroom mirror. In Randy I recognized two of my long-ago best friends, as well as two of my long-ago best wishes—to be a dancer and to be an artist. In Oliver I have borrowed liberally from the things I know and remember about my sons, and from many other little boys besides. Large patches of him are invented, of course, which is also true of the others. I never knew of a boy of six, for instance, who got away with an adventure like Oliver's Saturday excursion but on the other hand I have been intimately concerned with a boy who collected moths, just as ardently as Oliver did. The whole family was involved in this hobby of his. All of us went through the grief of caterpillars lost, strayed, or perished, through the inconvenience of cocoons hung up in the wrong places, and the foragings by flashlight for special leaves to feed ravenous larvae, while the forgetful collector slept in deepest calm. Reminders of my son's characters also occur in that of Rush, though not so often as in the case of Oliver. In Rush I trace memories of other boys I knew, one who played the piano marvellously well, and one who was a curly-haired rascal with a large vocabulary, and a propensity for getting into and neatly out of trouble. Cuffy is someone I knew when I was five years old, and someone else I knew when I was twelve. One of them was rather cross, the other very gentle. Both of them were fat people, elderly, and in their different ways knew how to love children, so that they felt comfortable and cosy. Father is composed of several fathers of my acquaintance, all of them kind and hard-working, and deeply interested in their children. As for Isaac, except for the fact that he is a male and not pure-blooded, he is exactly like our own fat, freckled cocker-spaniel, who was gloriously won in a raffle by the father in our family. The house, which is called the four-story mistake, is made out of several queer, old, interesting houses that I have seen, and is set in the kind of country which I have enjoyed the most—country with plenty of woods, hills, streams, and valleys. 
Wishing has played a large part in these stories, too, as you can see. The Melondies have and do all the things I would have liked to have and do as a child. There are plenty of them, for one thing, and I was an only child. They live in the country all year round, for another, and I lived in the city for most of it. They discovered a secret room, built a treehouse, found a diamond, escaped from dangers, effected rescues, gave elaborate theatrical performances at the drop of a hat, got lost, and did many other striking things, all of which I would have liked to do. So the Melendies, you see, are a mixture. They are made out of wishes and memory and fancy. This, I am sure, is what all the characters in books are made of, yet while I was writing about these children they often seemed to me like people that I knew, and when you are reading the stories of their trials and adventures, I hope that you, too, will sometimes feel that they are real. Elizabeth Enright, 1947 Then there were five. Chapter One. All Summer Long. What a noise there was that day! It sounded like a pack of young sea-lions. But it was really only the Melindy children. They were building a dam. Rush had thought of it. He had thought of it in the middle of the night in a dream, and this morning at breakfast he had told them about it. "'Listen, kids,' he'd said, "'I've been thinking for a long time that we needed a bigger swimming place. The one we've got now is too little. When we're all in it together the congestion is fierce, and it's too shallow. Every time I dive off the bank I'm scared I'll come up with concussion of the brain.' "'Well, what are you planning to do?' inquired Mona, with a tinge of sarcasm. "'Widen the brook, or deepen it, or something?' "'Exactly, my dear Watson,' replied Rush, with a flourish of toast. "'I propose to build a dam at the foot of the bathing-pool, where the waterfall begins.' Oliver and Randy greeted the idea with enthusiasm. Anything, work or play, that involved plenty of water and mud was agreeable to them. And even Mona could see that the idea had its points.' So there they were, hard at it, digging up rocks, hauling logs, and building them into a sort of walk across the brook. Everybody had ideas as to how the dam should be constructed. The air rang, quivered, with commands, directions, opinions, arguments. Frequent arguments, and all carried on at an ear-splitting pitch in competition with the noisy little waterfall. The two dogs, Isaac and John Doe, added to the general pandemonium by running to and fro on the bank and barking. They always barked when voices were raised. It was strange how the character of each melody was shown in his work. Take Rush, for instance. He was fourteen and strong for his age. His bare ribs, like an Indian brave's, were striped with mud where he had slapped furiously at mosquitoes. He worked violently and fast— lugged the biggest rocks, lifted the heaviest loads, grunted, struggled, perspired, and from time to time was forced to give in and rest from sheer exhaustion. Mona was the eldest. She was very pretty and quite old, past fifteen. Her job was to stuff the chinks between the stones with dead leaves, wads of moss and grass, anything to keep the water from pouring through. This she did efficiently and quickly, pausing now and then to look at her own dark reflection in the pool, or to wash the mud from her fastidious fingers. She was certainly the only one who bothered to do that. Oliver, who was seven and three-quarters, worked like a little engine on a track. Back and forth he went, over and over, never getting tired because he never handled more than he could manage. 
Randy, twelve, was the one who slipped and stumbled oftenest. Strange that Randy, who drew so well and danced like a fairy, should be so clumsy at manual labor. Already she had a swollen toe and a bruised thumb. Heaven knows what she would have before the date was over. Yet in spite of the punishment she took, oops. Yet in spite of the punishment she took, Randy enjoyed this engineering, and her dark curls shook and quivered in the ardor of her exertion. It sprung another leak over here, Rush," called Oliver, imparting the bad news with an air of gratified importance. My gosh, again! Rush splashed over to the spot. This job is tougher than I thought it would be. How do the beavers do it? Well, for one thing, they have tails as well as hands to work with," said Mona, scooping up dead leaves. Yes, and teeth," agreed Rush. Every beaver I ever saw had teeth like a Japanese general's. Don't be discouraged, Rush," said Randy piously. "Think of Boulder Dam. I bet those men didn't get discouraged." Rush had to laugh at that. By noon, however, the dam looked something like a dam, and the pool was beginning to fill up. Another couple of days, Rush said. What about lunch? Inquired Oliver practically. He was feeling the justified hunger pangs of a day laborer. Oh, lunch! Rush was cross. That's the trouble with life. You get to work on an idea or a piece of music or or a dam or something, all concentrated and working right. And then suddenly, at an arbitrary time, you have to stop and eat food, chew and swallow, chew and swallow, three times a day. It's a silly habit. Trouble with you is you're hungry," said Mona tranquilly, "and you're cross because you know you'll have to wash off all that mud before Cuffy lets you in the house. What's an arbitrary time?" asked Oliver. "Lunchtime, I guess he means," Randy told him. "Oh, look, here comes Cuffy, and I think." Yes, how swell! She has got our lunch with her. Good old Cuffy! They watched her coming toward them, white and fat and round, like a pigeon on the lawn. She had a basket and a thermos bottle. When they flung themselves upon her in gratitude and greed, she brushed them aside. Go on with you! She scolded, pretending to be annoyed. I just wanted to keep your muddy tracks out of the house. But the Malindies knew that that was only partly true. Cuffy believed in a little pleasant spoiling blended with discipline. She had been taking care of them so long that in many ways they felt as if she were their mother, whom they had lost a long time before, or more like a very special grandmother, perhaps, since she was white-haired and roly-poly. Cuffy, you come and eat with us," said Oliver, pushing his dirty paw into her clean pink one. No, no, my lamb. I'm going to mop myself into a corner of the kitchen and have a cup of tea, and don't one of you dare come in until it's dry. The children sat on the grass with their bare, muddy legs stretched out before them in the sunshine. The brook sang and tinkled in the shade. Across the lawn, all smothered in vines and sheltered by Norway spruce trees, stood their house—the strange house that they lived in and they loved. It was a square old building with quantities of ornamental iron trimming, a mansard roof, and a fancy little cupola like a frosted cake perched on top of it. The four-story mistake the house was called because years ago, when it was built, the architect had made a mistake and left off a story. 
The Melendies had only moved into it in the fall, but they did not like to believe that they had ever lived anywhere else. There were still surprises that it could give them, though. Now that June was here, the old ragged-looking vine over the kitchen door had suddenly become a cascade of little yellow roses that smelled like tea. The grass in the orchard was full of tiny wild strawberries, hot from the sun and sweet as honey, and in the spruce tree outside Russia's window an oriole had built its nest, a silver purse full of gold. "'All summer,' said Rush, with his mouth full. "'Think of it. All summer long.' "'All summer what?' Mona wanted to know. "'Just all summer,' Rush said happily. "'I mean, this is only the beginning of it. "'Dams and swimming and the garden and picnics and hot days and all. "'Oh, boy!' "'Sometimes it will rain, and sometimes we'll get stomach aches, "'and sometimes Cuffy will be cross,' said Oliver realistically. "'Rush laughed. "'A pessimist at seven. Eight, said Oliver. "'Almost.' I get a birthday pretty soon. What's a pessimist? By the end of the afternoon, the dam was finished. Randy looked at it in consternation. But now there's no waterfall, she cried. I didn't think about there being no waterfall. Just that little trickle. I miss the noise. "'Silly, that's the point,' said Rush. "'Cut off the waterfall, and up comes the pool. "'When it gets high enough, it'll slop over the top again. "'And look how swell it will be for swimming.' "'Well, I guess so.' "'Randy was doubtful. "'Will it be full enough tomorrow when we wake up?' said Oliver. "'Nope, not tomorrow, and not the day after. "'But maybe the day after that.' "'More than two days.' Oliver felt it might as well have been a month. He had supposed the pool would fill right up like a bathtub. He was disgusted. They had worked hard. The dam was twice as thick as necessary, and it zigzagged like the Great Wall of China, but it was strong and well constructed. They were pleased with their work, even though it was now finished and they were muddy and would have to take baths. To her collection of wounds, Randy had added a gash on the shin. "'How did you get away without knocking one of your teeth out?' Rush said. "'Overlook it?' "'Randy puts her whole soul into her work,' Mona defended her sister. "'Okay, just so long as she doesn't put her front teeth into it, too.' "'He jests at scars that never felt a wound,' remarked Mona gloomily. She was fond of quoting Shakespeare, but in the next moment she ruined the effect by breaking into a gallop and shouting over her shoulder at Randy.' First dibs on the bathtub. She almost crashed into Willie Sloper coming around the corner of the house. He had changed from his customary overalls to his blue serge suit. How many of you folks want to drive to the train with me to meet your papa? All of them did, even the dogs. They left no doubt in Willie's mind about that. "'Well, hurry up and get tidy, then. "'I can't take you to town all muddy like that. "'I just cleaned off the carriage this afternoon.' "'He certainly had. "'Half an hour later, when they were all in the Surrey, "'the odour of cleaning fluid was almost asphyxiating. "'Nobody light a match,' cautioned Rush unnecessarily. "'We'd explode like a blockbuster.' 
"'If you hang your head over the side, it's not so bad,' said Randy, who was less in than out of the carriage. As for Mona, she was holding a heavily perfumed handkerchief up to her nose, and rolling her eyes above it, like one of those fainting heroines in an old-fashioned novel. Oliver was sitting beside Willie in the front seat. "'I don't see why you mind it,' he said stolidly to the three in the back. "'I think it's a nice smell.' He gave a loud, relishing sniff to prove it. Mmm, good. <sniffs> Willie smiled at him. You're my pal, ain't ya? Anyways, it'll wear off in time. Well, it looks just lovely, Willie, anyway, Mona said. It never looked so nice. Willie was pleased. Ought to. Besides cleanin' them seats, I brushed it all out with a whisk broom and I took and put Vaseline on the dashboard to kind of limber it up, and then I shined it up good with black shoe polish. "'Ah, that explains the peculiar bouquet,' remarked Rush, breathing deeply. "'I thought it couldn't be just only cleaning fluid.' "'And notice the fringe,' continued Willie, ignoring him. "'Why, it's all untangled.' "'Combed it,' said Willie. "'Combed it right out.' "'just as tender as if it was a baby's hair.' "'Lorna Doone looks nice, too,' Randy said. "'The dappled horse had roses stuck in the bridle above her ears. "'From the front, with her long eyelashes and comb-like blinkers, "'she resembled a very homely Spanish senorita, "'but from the side and back the effect was both spirited and dressy. "'Father will be pleased,' Mona said happily for, of course, all this grandeur was for father. He had not been home for two whole weeks. "'Maybe he can stay all the time now, like he used to,' Randy said hopefully. "'Maybe he won't even have to go and lecture any more.' "'Fat chance,' said Rush, with the war going on. "'Probably he'll have to be away even more.' And that is exactly what was to happen." After the joyful confusion of arrival, the hugs, the shouts, the bits of news that couldn't wait, after father had had his hat knocked off and brushed and put on again, and his briefcase and suitcase rested away from him, after he had shaken hands with Willie and admired the Surrey and patted Lorna Doone and given her a lump of train sugar, don't let Washington hear about this, said father. After they were all packed in the Surrey, and Braxton lay far behind, and the green country meadows lapped the road edge and the green country meadows lapped the road edge in green waves, Randy asked the question. Will you have to go away any more, father? Say you won't. Say you'll stay now say you'll stay here now with us all the time. Father pulled one of Randy's curls. I wish I could. "'Well, why can't you? You used to.' "'Used to doesn't mean anything any more, Randy. "'The used-to world is all—' "'Whoops, phone's going off. "'Used to doesn't mean anything any more, Randy. "'The used-to world is all cut away from us now, "'floating away in the distance like a balloon or a bubble. "'It isn't real any longer. "'Perhaps it's a good thing that it's gone. "'I hope so.' Oliver, like a small retriever, nosed out the fact that lay beneath these words. "'You mean you're going to have to go away again?' Father nodded. "'I'm going to have to go away again, and stay longer.' Randy sat up. "'Are you going to be a soldier?' 
father laughed. "'Unfortunately I'm too old, and too decidedly a father. "'I have to keep busy getting worms for my young.' "'Why can't you dig them up at home?' pleaded Randy. "'Because I'm going to dig them up in Washington, "'in a large, government-owned bird sanctuary.' "'Gosh,' Rush said, "'have you got a government job?' "'That's right. A fascinating one, too.' "'Doing what?' "'Secret,' said Father complacently. "'So secret that I even have to guard against talking to myself.' "'How often can you come home?' said Mona. "'A weekend, now and then.' "'and perhaps two weeks in August.' "'This was gloomy news. "'They contemplated it resentfully. "'You might just as well be a soldier after all,' sighed Randy. "'Yes, and that way you'd at least get a medal,' said Oliver. "'But it was so wonderful to have him with them, "'even for a short time, and the day was so perfect, "'the country so downy with the new summer, "'that they couldn't be sad for long.' As they turned in at the gate of the four-story mistake, Rush said, "'We have a surprise for you. We made it today.' "'Let's save it for last, though,' said Mona. And as always when Father returned, they led him about the place on a tour of inspection. First they went to the vegetable garden. "'I killed those,' said Oliver, with bloodthirsty satisfaction, pointing to a huge pile of dead weeds.' "'The best type of killing one can do,' father approved. "'He was made to look at the onions "'and remark upon how tall they'd grown, "'and the carrots, the beets, the tomato plants. "'Look at the peas,' said Mona. "'They really have little beginnings of pods on them. "'And the lettuce has stopped looking like a ruffle. "'You can tell it's lettuce now.' "'And see the corn,' Oliver pointed out. "'I don't pull it up for quack grass any more, "'and the radishes are getting too big already.' "'but something keeps eating the cabbages.' "'I hope it eats them all before they get a chance to ripen,' "'observed Rush darkly. "'And I've already spoken to a couple of caterpillars I know about the broccoli.' "'Sulphur and iron,' said Mona, in exactly Cuffy's voice. "'Growing children need lots of sulphur and iron.' "'I'd rather eat them in their mineral state,' Rush said. Then they took father to look at the raspberry bushes, another summer surprise produced by the four-story mistake, and then to see the rose moss, but it was all closed up, and the delphiniums just coming out that Mona had planted. "'I love delphinium buds,' Randy said. "'They're exactly like big blue tadpoles.' The canterbury bells were just beginning, too, but the columbine and bleeding hearts were nearly over. Soon there would be hollyhocks and flocks.' They took him to see Persephone, the goat, and her new kid, and Willie's white chickens that he kept behind the stable, and last of all they took him down to see the dam. Father was overwhelmed. "'What a piece of engineering!' he cried. "'So strong and so, so big! It would take the Johnstown flood to break it open. How long did it take you to do it?' "'Just all day,' Rush told him modestly. "'But of course there were four of us working on it.' "'When I come up next time, I'll enjoy swimming in it. "'Before this, the water in the deepest part came only to my collarbone.' "'As they stood contemplating it, father silent in admiration, "'and the rest of them silent in the pride of creation, "'there was a piercing blast from the front door of the house. 
It was Cuffy blowing the police whistle, and it meant that supper was ready. Randy danced across the lawn ahead of Father. "'Look, I can walk on my toes, almost, and in sneakers, too. When can I have a pair of real toe-shoes, do you think?' Mona's arm was linked through Father's, and Oliver was hanging on to his other hand. Rush walked beside them, and everybody was talking at once. Isaac and John Doe circled around them, madly barking and scuffling, showing Father what big, serious dogs they had become. A delicious fragrance of food floated from the kitchen, and from the kitchen windows. "'Wait till you hear my new piece,' Rush was saying. "'It's a Schumann novelette, and boy, is it tough!' Mona said, "'I know the whole of Macbeth by heart now, all the parts. "'I'll do it all for you after supper, if you like.' "'Oliver said, "'Did you see the President in Washington, Father? "'Did you get to shake his hand? "'Did you talk to him?' "'And Randy, circling among the circling dogs, "'flitting and soaring like a moth, "'kept calling the same question. "'Do you think I could have some toe-shoes pretty soon, Father? "'Real toe-shoes, pink satin ones with satin ribbons. "'Do you think I can, Father? Do you? "'Honestly, do you?' Cuffy had all Father's favorite things for supper, beginning with leek and potato soup, and building up to a grand finale of strawberry pie. Afterward they went out again. The birds were carrying on all over the place, and a little crowd of swallows flew high overhead, chattering like children out of school. The grass and leaves smelled of evening, and there was a coolness around one's ankles. Rush wanted to start a game of prisoner's base, but Father said no, that he couldn't run because he was pie-bound. He sat on the front steps, smoking his pipe. Already the pale, strained city look was beginning to leave him. Rush and Mona and Randy sat beside him, but Oliver walked about by himself, watching the dusk creep out of the woods. Everything was changing. The two iron deer now looked like proud, pausing live animals, and when he went into the summer-house it was filled with such a mysterious green twilight that he felt very lonely suddenly, and walked out slowly, his neck prickling, and everything about him hurrying except his feet. He would not let them hurry, nor would he let his head turn to look back. High in the sky the first star came out like a flower. Still walking, Oliver looked up and spoke to it. Starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight, wish I may, wish I might, have the wish I wish tonight. Oliver wished that someone would give him a little helicopter for his birthday. Then he walked the rest of the way with his head bowed, staring at his shoes. If he glimpsed the star again, his wish would be lost. Father was beginning to yawn. I think, oh, I think I bet, oh, I'd better go, oh, to bed. Fresh air. Can't take it, eh? said Rush. Nope, too strong for me. You should see how brilliant and alert I am on carbon monoxide fumes and si- Oh, ah, cigar smoke. He's so tired, Mona said when he had gone. It's awful he has to work so hard. "'Digging worms for us,' said Rush, "'and trying to do his bit besides. "'I wish I could do something to help. "'I wish I could be of some use.' "'Oh, Rush, you are a help,' Randy cried. "'You earn every bit of your own spending money "'giving those piano lessons. "'Mona earns all of her own living "'acting on the radio twice a week in the Penfold people. "'What do I do? 
I don't do anything, that's what. It seems as if I'm the only really dependent one in the place besides the dogs, and Oliver, of course, but he's so young he couldn't... I could take ticks off dogs for people, said Oliver sternly. I'm good at it. I could go around to people's houses with a bottle and some tweezers, and maybe they'd pay me a penny apiece. That's not what I mean exactly, interrupted Rush. Not just money. If we keep somebody from going to war by being dependents, then it seems as if we ought to do extra things by helping generally. Would they take any people as young as me in the army? cried Oliver, his eyes shining. I could clean out the insides of cannons, for instance. I'm a good size for it. Oh, no, Oliver, don't be silly. The best thing you can do is keep after the weeds in the vegetable garden. Weeds. Oliver's face clouded. He knew plenty about them by now. There was one called purslane, with a lot of fat pink tentacles that grew up overnight in countless numbers. There was quack grass, coarse and hardy, its roots stretching under the earth in endless nets. There were yellow dock and lamb's quarters and velvet leaf, such stubborn, boring little enemies. Oliver would have liked to be up in the sky shooting down zeros, instead of down on the earth pulling up weeds. Mona knits, and she's done first aid, of course. Not that she remembers any of it. Artificial respiration, cried Mona. I remember artificial respiration perfectly. Get down on your stomach, and I'll show— No, thank you. I won't let you demonstrate it on me until you remember what kind of bandage to put on cracked ribs. I think you're mean. I was the best in the class at artificial respiration. Miss McCarthy said so. All right. You can be the one who resuscitates drowning persons from now on. But since the opportunities for this type of work are few and far between, and since you are off the radio for the summer, I suggest you do something else. Help Cuffy, for instance. People are supposed to can a lot of food, aren't they? That sounded pleasant and rather simple, as well as comfortably far in the future, since practically nothing was ripe yet. Mona agreed graciously. "'Randy and I will go out and collect scrap. "'We'll have a scrap drive, and I mean a drive. "'We'll hitch Lorna Doone to the Surrey, "'and we'll go to all the backwoods farms up in the hills "'and see what we can dig up. "'I think it's a swell idea. "'We'll drive the buggy, see, "'and on the back of it we'll have a sign saying, "'Scrap drive. Get it?' "'Too subtle for me,' said Mona sarcastically. "'But Randy and Oliver thought it was a brilliant idea.' "'It sounds nicer than weeds,' Oliver commented wistfully, and Randy promised to let him take her place part of the time. "'We'll start Monday after Father's gone,' Rush decided. "'I'm bushed. All that work on the dam, I guess. And, Oliver, you should have been in bed ages ago. Cuffy only let you stay up because Father was here. Scram!' "'Ooh, how my muscles hurt,' groaned Mona, getting up from the steps. "'All kinds of little ones that I didn't know I had. It hurts—' It even hurts me to sigh. Tired as they were, however, the Melandies didn't fall asleep immediately that night. Their usual lullaby had been removed for the time being, and they missed it. Instead of the soft, rushing, varying harmonies of the waterfall, there was the dark silence of a country night. This silence was woven of many small sounds, of soft, long owl calls, of tree-frogs' voices, of invisible wings fluttering past a window, and above all the delicate, ceaseless breathing of the woods. 
That's the end of chapter one. Read for you by Kara Schallenberg, www.kra.org, on September 1st, 2012, in San Diego, California.